The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So tonight's June 20th, is that right? And uh, we're continuing a series of talks on the mind and the way, Buddhist Reflections on Life by Ajahn Sumedho. And some of you are reading along. You don't need to, but if you'd like to get the book as a resource, feel free to do that. And tonight I want to review the last several chapters um, because it's, this whole section is about more, more uh, instruction about sitting practice. And it's nice to see how the different chapters are just angles on our practice, different perspectives on sitting practice. And in some ways, you know, our sitting practice seems so straightforward. We just sit down and watch the breath or watch sensations. But of course, um, mostly what our practice is about is changing the way, changing the way we relate to the present moment. And everything that we actually do in a formal set meditation period, they're just different skillful means to help um, sort of be a catalyst for this change in how we relate to the present moment. So how can we change the way we relate? So just to review, in Chapter 8, uh, Ajahn Sumedho talked about meditation practice being primarily about right attitude. And he talked about the shift from our normal attitude in life, which is trying to get something from life, trying to get something from the present moment, so normally we call this the attitude of attainment. I'm here to get something. You know, we come to Common Ground to get something. I'm here to get some peace of mind. Where is it? Or, you know, we, um, <clears throat> we're always being strategic in our choices, what we do, how we spend our time. We're strategic. We're trying to get something or get rid of something. And so in that chapter, chapter 8, Ajahn Sumedho saying, we're dropping that habit of attainment and we're replacing it with a, a more skillful habit or a more skillful orientation, which is wanting to understand the way things are. So this is different than attainment. We're not, we're not looking for anything in particular. We're simply wanting to understand how things are in the moment, in the present moment. So this is uh, something we can remember uh, about our practice. Paul, there's a chair up here that you can get. So that's chapter 8. And then chapter 9, he talked about mindfulness of breathing. And in mindfulness of breathing, we're talking about, in that chapter, we're talking about a particular technique that helps us begin this Revolution and how we're relating to the present moment. So if we're not trying to get something, then what we're trying to do is just be open to how things are. And so we have, we're handed this little technique called mindfulness of breathing. And it's just a container, you know, an activity that helps us experiment with understanding the way it is. So we practice with the breath and the body. Can we practice not trying to get anything out of the breath? The breath is nice because it's not so easy to get anything from our breath. 
I mean, as a, in terms of watching it. So we, we learn, uh, the most important lesson we learn is patience. Like, the breath we watch at the beginning of the sit is not so different than the breath we watch at the end of the sit. So we really can learn how frustrating it is to try to get something from the breath. And instead, we can just try to understand the breath as it is or receive the breath as it is. So we're kind of operationalizing what he's called in Chapter 8, Right Attitude, by using the breath and practicing right attitude with the breath, which is just to receive the breath, to understand the breath as a present moment condition in the body. The breath is like this. Learning patience. And it's like with that basic technique of watching the breath in the body, we're weaning the mind from its habit of wanting to get something. You know how it is, like the mind really wants to pay attention so that it can get concentration. You know, I'm trying to get concentrated. But it's really frustrating because if we do that, what we get is tension. <laughs> we might even get tension here on the brow or tension in the nose. or It just creates tension to want to be concentrated or want to be whatever. So we learn, by usually by creating a lot of tension and frustration, we learn that the way to do mindfulness of breathing is just to let the breathing happen. And we don't even need to have a sense that the mind is going out to see the breath. You know, here's the mind, and I want to know the breath, so that I have to take my mind and bring it to the breath. It's not even, that's even too much. It's much more like... The breath is like this. It's already here. There's nothing that needs to be done. And this really helps us learn non-attainment or receptivity. And then chapter 10, uh, it's called Cleansing the Mind. This is what I talked about last week. And this is really important because then when we undertake that simple technique of non-attainment, using the breath, for example, to practice non-attainment, to just let things be. Then we have moments of this powerful, radical cleansing of the mind. And the way it works is, here we are watching the breath, observing the breath, receiving the breath, trusting the breath, just letting the breath be. And in those moments of just letting the breath be, all of a sudden, something will arise in the mind, right? Because we're not shutting things out. We're not like, I'm with the breath and uh, I'm kind of creating barriers so that nothing else can happen, nothing else is being known. It's a real rela uh, 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 kind of relaxation and receptivity. So we're just receiving the breath. And because we haven't closed any doors, other things will arise. You notice that? So when those other things arise, we could either think, ah, that's a problem because I'm, I need to be with the breath, or we can let the mind, we can allow this cleansing process to happen. And the way that cleansing process works is, just like we're practicing receiving the breath without trying to get anything from the breath, then when those other things arise, like painful memories or comparing mind, judging mind, planning mind, all the different kinds of mind states that we can have, then we practice doing exactly the same thing 
with those other states, those other conditions in the mind, just receiving them. Oh, worrying is like this, planning is like this, remembering is like this. And there's something deeply cleansing about that. What we're cleansing, what, what's being uprooted, is the tendency towards reactivity. So we let that painful memory come in or that exciting thought come in without pushing and pulling, without trying to feed off of it or get anything from it. Like if it's an exciting thought, we'll try to get, you know, it's almost like we're trying to feed off of the excitement of that thought about the future. Or if it's a painful thought, you know, we try to feed off of it by going, oh, I'm so glad that's not happening. Oh, I have to get rid of that because then I'll be happy. And so we're indulging in it or repressing. And that doesn't work. So we practice just receiving it. And the cleansing part is discovering, it's this insight that we don't have to do anything with these thoughts, these distractions. That they arise and they cease on their own. That is such a powerful insight. It is such a relief, a breath of fresh air, to know that any hope, any afflictive thought, no matter what it is, no matter how despicable it is, no matter how sublime the thought is, that any thought that comes into the mind will pass out of the mind without anybody having to do anything. That's such a relief not to have to take our thoughts personally, not to have to react to our thoughts. It's deeply cleansing, it's purifying, because what it does is it undermines the deep pattern toward reacting or reactivity, reacting to the conditions of the present moment. So thoughts can come, pain can come, pleasure can come, everything can come, and we just let it come because we know it's going. That is the very nature of all things, including our thoughts, including the sensations in the body. They come in and they go out. And they do this without anybody having to do anything. It's just their nature to come and go. But this is not so easy to see because our, our habit is so much to want to take control of our experience of the conditions in the present moment. It's not easy for the mind to sort of be in this uh, other way of relating. That's why we train with the breath. So first we remember, you know, chapter 8, it's really it's like what we should do at the very beginning of our sit, which is remember more than anything else, this meditation period is about a discovery of right attitude, like learning something about right attitude. Not just right attitude for sitting meditation practice, but right attitude for life. So that's why we're sitting, to, to learn something, to have some glimpse, if we're fortunate, about what the proper attitude is in life. And then, then we begin our practice. And because we don't know anything, we just say, well, I'll just try, check out this technique that people have been using for thousands of years called mindfulness of the breath. So we just start there. And here there is this body, and the body's like this. And as we get sensitive to the body, we start noticing there's a breath in the body. It's just part of the physical experience of the body. The belly rises, the belly contracts, or we feel that touching sensation at the nostrils as the air goes in, the touching sensation as the air goes out. And we practice the right attitude, which is not trying to get anything from the breath, being really intimate and clear with the breathing process, 
without trying to get anything from it. And then, in as we practice that, we have moments of just receiving. We have moments of right attitude, I guess we could say, where we're we're not trying to do anything. We're just simply receiving the experience. You know, in conventional language, we could call this being in the flow, being in the flow of life, just letting breath happen, letting breathing happen, not trying to be the breather, not trying to control the breath, but just letting breathing happen and being so present with the breathing process that there isn't even a sense of Mark breathing or Mark doing a good job being mindful of the breath. There's just breathing being known. The breath coming in, the, the touching sensations of the breath coming in, the touching as the breath goes out, or the sensations of expansion as the breath comes in, the sensations of contraction as the breath goes out. When we learn it with something relatively simple and available like the breathing, then we start to take this uh, growing understanding of right attitude into the distractions that arise unavoidably in our sitting practice, right? in our daily life practice for that matter. So and then we start to learn something about right attitude and then we start to bring right attitude as best we can and we're going to fail thousands of times but we just as best we can when the mind starts to get caught up we try to remember the possibility of right attitude with any distraction that comes up in the mind. Anything the mind fixates on, any self-centered drama, any aversion to pain, any interest in the sound of the bird, any thoughts about the future or past. So we try to bring right attitude, which is not to try to get anything from those thoughts. Non-attainment, remember? So it's just about wanting to understand the thoughts as thoughts. Basically, right attitude is whatever the conditions that are being known in the present moment, whether they're mental conditions or physical conditions, the mind is understanding them as conditions. Oh, this is just a condition being known in the present moment. And it's like this. So it's just a condition in the present moment, meaning it's not self, it's just something being known. Just something being known. And and you might even get a sense right now, especially those of you who practice for a while, how conducive of peacefulness this is. When we understand the present moment conditions, all our thoughts, all our sensations, the sounds, when we understand those conditions as just conditions of the present moment, there, that quality of non-attachment is palatable. It's like a spaciousness in the mind. And that brings us to the next chapter, which is called, uh, what is it called? Noticing Space. And it's really, it's really referring to what we call insight. When we begin to understand Nibbana, or the unconditioned, it's not something extraordinary, like, you know, after years of arduous practice, then we receive Nibbana, enlightenment. Nibbana, the unconditioned, the space, the natural space of the heart, mind, it's what we swim in all the time. It's like the, the old joke is about trying to describe water to a fish, you know, it wouldn't be easy to explain water to a fish. Like, how would you begin? What's the thing you swim in? <laughs> but that's all they know. So it's like, how would they know water? And it's like space for us. 
we're always, our life unfolds in space, the space of this room. We think we know space, but space can't be known as a thing, can it? I mean, we pretend we know space. We put like walls up, ceiling and roof, I mean, uh, roof and floor, and then we have a sense of the space of this room. But actually, the space in this room isn't defined by the walls and the ceiling and floor. The space of this room is just part of space. And then there are walls and floors. There are a lot of objects. There are people. There's lots of activity in the space. But the space itself is immeasurable. It doesn't have boundaries. And this is a little bit why the practice is confusing. We have minds that, for all kinds of reasons, we're in the habit of fixating on the activity or the objects, conditions of the present moment, like sounds, like thoughts, like smells, like sensations. And the mind fixates. It sees those, knows those. And then it reacts by interpreting those things. So basically, knowing a condition leads to the creation of another condition. And there's a certain kind of web of delusion that happens. And this sort of web of delusion keeps us from recognizing the space in which it's all happening. And so this next chapter, the chapter we're on now, chapter 11, Noticing space is really about, you know, in those moments of cleansing. So, like I said, we train with the breath or with ordinary sensations, not trying to get anything from the experience, just receiving, just letting things be, letting the condition, whatever we're watching, like the conditions of the breath, letting those conditions unfold naturally, effortlessly. Nobody has to do anything to breathe. So we just practice receiving the natural process of breathing. And then when we discover this right attitude with the breath, then we take it to the other distractions, other things that are happening, and we start learning it there. And the more we learn not to grab or get attached or indulge or repress the various conditions of the present moment, the more the space of the present moment just becomes apparent. And like I said at the beginning of this section of the talk, this is called insight. We're noticing something, intuitively knowing something about the present moment that we usually miss. And so that's what we refer to as insight. Insight means we're seeing something that we haven't yet seen about the nature of the mind or the nature of experience. It's like something is being illuminated. And we go, oh. So it's, an, it's sort of like an aha, because we hadn't seen it. And all of a sudden, we see it. And one of the aspects of insight is when we see it, we also understand it's always been this way. I just haven't been seeing it. I've been not seeing it, but it's always been this way. So it's not like the space of the present moment all of a sudden came right now. And the reason I didn't see it before is because it wasn't there. But it's always been here, but we keep missing it because of the mind is tight and narrow. So like at the beginning of the sit tonight, just as a way of reflecting, I suggested we hear sounds and just notice 
the space in which sounds are being heard. And you know how it is, like when the mind gets really narrow, like sometimes I think about a particular conflict in my life, and uh, like it or not, when I start going down that road, my mind starts to get really narrow and tight. And it's like the whole world disappears except for this particular problem. Do you know that experience? When we get caught in one of our stories, it's like the whole world can disappear except for this problem. And it's a little bit like a black hole, as physicists describe black holes. They have this in incredible gravitational um, pull. <laughs> and so it's like nothing, nothing escapes the story. It's like it's whatever, whatever arises, it always is sort of in terms of the story. It's always about this. And there's no kind of, there's really no getting out of it until we get, you know, somehow it's like it becomes so incredibly painful, we just die, basically, and we're reborn free of it. <laughs> I don't know exactly how that happens. You ever wonder about that? Like when you're really fixated on something, really caught up, how you ever get out of it? I think we don't want to know how we get out of it because it undermines the delusion that this is important. You know, one of the whole, the whole uh, glue of any of those black holes or self-centered dramas, all the glue is about, this is so important. Don't stop thinking about this. I'm telling you, this is important. And it's like, if we ever saw what a house of cards it is, it would sort of blow its cover. So, but at the same time, if we just keep fixating on it, we're going to die. Because <laughs> it's so incredibly painful and stressful. So somehow, magically almost, the mind goes into some unconsciousness. And in that moment of unconsciousness, we free ourselves from that fixation. You know, Generally, we jump into some other less afflictive obsession. <laughs> and then we're relatively free of that particular you know, black hole. So it's good to reflect on, like, we may not understand intuitively what Mark's talking about when I say space, but definitely we all know what contraction that narrow mind is like. We all know that experience when the mind gets really tight, obsessed, fixated on a particular thing. And so what, uh, what is that experience of space? I'll read a little bit from Ajahn Semino's book, Chapter 11. So this is right at the beginning. The space in the room is peaceful. The objects in the room can excite, repel, or attract. But the space has no such quality. However, even though the space does not attract our attention, we can be fully aware of it. <coughs> and we can become aware of it when we are no longer absorbing into the objects in the room. When we reflect on the space in the room, we feel a sense of calm because all the space is the same. The space around you and the space around me is no different. It's not mine. I can't say this space belongs to me. That space belongs to you. Space is always present. It makes it possible for us to be together, contained within a room in a space that is limited by walls. 
Space is also outside the room. It contains the whole building, the whole world. So space is not bound by objects in any way. It is not bound by anything. If we wish, we can view space as limited in a room, but really space is unlimited. And it's interesting how uh, even in a casual way, we might say, you know, if we had a nice interaction with somebody, and the interaction that we had with this person, it wasn't about what was said or what wasn't said, but it just was a nice uh, it was a nice time being with that person. And we might casually say to them, uh, it was nice sharing space with you. you know, have you ever said that to somebody? And there, there's something about that. I, um, especially with our best friends, the people we know really well, one of the nicest things to do with really good friends isn't the particular activity, but to find an activity where you can just share space. You know, you can just sort of be together. And now, you might have to do something to do that. You know, you might have to go bowling. But it won't be about the bowling. It will be about the fact that being together, and because of the comfort level, you know, the intimacy, you don't have to project anything or hold it all together, the interaction. And they don't have to do that. And so there's a feeling of just sharing space the space of not having to do anything to be loved, to be liked, to be seen, to be recognized, but just being at ease together, right? And so we, are, we know this experience intuitively. We're nat we're naturally we naturally gravitate towards situations where we can just be at ease, where we can share space because it, it makes us feel at ease. Just like if we're in situations where the mind tends to fixate or obsess or get tight, you know, those places are painful. So in terms of our practice, you know, <clears throat> this part of practice we call insight. So this is the fruit of doing all this other work of, first of all, Remembering that we need to practice. What do we need to practice? We need to practice right attitude because we live our life primarily with a wrong attitude, meaning we're trying to get something from life. And that trying to get something from life creates stress. And because of that stress, we want to get something from life. We want to get rid of our stress. We want to get to peacefulness. But that wanting is sets in motion the attainment, the striving which sets emotion the stress. So it's a feedback loop called suffering, or in Buddhism we call it samsara, cycles of suffering. So the first step is to remember it's about right attitude, about relating in a way that doesn't create stress. So we practice with for something simple like the breathing, and we learn to be with the breath, receive the breath, without trying to get anything from the breath. So we practice being with this ordinary phenomena of the breath without indulging in it, without repressing it, without picking and choosing, but just letting the mind come into the flow, the natural unfolding of the breath. And then we learn that with the breath, and we start learning that with other conditions. And the more we do that, the more we start recognizing the space, the natural 
inherent space of the present moment or the space of awareness or the space of the mind, we start having this insight. The more we have this insight, the more we trust it. It's like this is our real refuge. The reason it's our real refuge is that the more we have this intuitive understanding of space, the more we realize that any particular condition that might arise in our life, we don't need to worry about. Because we're not um, taking our stance in the particular conditions. That's not our refuge. We're taking refuge in the space of the present moment. And the more we take refuge in the space of the present moment, the less dependent the heart or mind is on the particular conditions of the present moment. So when you think about our predicament as a human being, we feel, uh, we feel quite tricked in a way or um, screwed in a way because we're dependent on conditions like the conditions of our body. And yet here we are getting older moment by moment, subject to accidents in any moment. An asteroid could fall on this building right now. It happens. You know, every, I don't know, several times a year, these little bits and pieces of space stuff breaks through the atmosphere, you know, doesn't burn up completely, and actually hits the Earth. And, you know, there is some probability that the next little centimeter of asteroid stuff is going to land right on this building. And that would be it for us, as living beings, at least. So this is the predicament we live in. And, you know, anything could happen any time. And if we're depending on conditions for our happiness and security, it's inherently, our existence is inherently vulnerable. So we can learn that there's something else to take refuge in, not the conditions of our mind, not the conditions around us, but the space of the heart, the space of awareness, or whatever you want to call it. Of course, it's always troublesome to call it anything. But intuitively, we can know this refuge. And this refuge then allows everything to be the way it is. Then I don't need to control my partner because he or she is allowed to be the way they are. Because I'm not dependent on them being a particular way. And that's really nice for my partner, for me, not to want to control her. I bet your partner would appreciate that, too, or your friend. So this is Ajahn Sumedho again. He says, life with a narrow view is suppressed and constricted. It is a struggle. There is always tension involved in it because it takes an enormous amount of energy to keep everything in order all the time. If you have a narrow view of life, the disorder of life has to be ordered for you. So you're always busy manipulating the mind and rejecting things or holding on to them. This is the dukkha, the suffering of ignorance, which comes from not understanding the way it is. And then he goes on to say, the spacious mind has room for everything. It is like the space in the room, which is never harmed by what goes on in or out of it. In fact, we say the space in this room, but actually the room in the space, the whole building is, the, is in the space. When the building has gone, the space will still be there. 
The space surrounds the building, and right now we are containing the space in a room. With this view, we can develop a new perspective. We can see that there are walls creating the shape of the room, and there is the space. Looking at it one way, the walls limit the space in the room. But looking at it another way, we see the space is limited. And this, of course, is just a metaphor. He's not really talking that the space of this room is our refuge. It's just a metaphor that the heart, or whatever you want to call it, isn't is it inherently free of the conditions that are happening, that are being known. So in Thai Buddhism, in the Thai forest tradition of Buddhism, the way the masters would talk about this, the meditation masters would talk about this is, as human beings, our only task is to understand the heart and the activity of the heart and to know the difference between the two. So the heart here means the inherent space of awareness or space of the present moment. And the activity is the conditions of the present moment, the thoughts we're having, sounds we're hearing, sensations that are being known. And we're so fixated on the conditions that that's all we know. And we are, in a sense, oblivious to the space. So we do meditation practice to have insight to wake up to the space in which the conditions are being known, to begin to make the distinction between the heart and the activity of the heart. So it's a retraining, you know, we're, we're retraining notice the space to not immediately fixate on the conditions in the moment but we use the conditions to recognize the space. Like one activity Ajahn Sumedho mentions in this chapter is that we can, we can use a particular thought. He gives the example of the thought, I'm a human being. And he suggests, well, we can use that. Like, we can intentionally think that thought silently in our mind, I'm a human being. Right? Assuming that's true for all of us. And we just say that I'm a human being in our mind. And then he just uh, he suggests we do this reflection where we notice right before we think that thought, and right before we have the intention to think that thought, there's space in the mind. In a moment, you can try this out. And then even while we're having that thought, I'm a human being, even between those words, you might even notice a little space. And then right at the very end, a human being, you'll notice there's space again. So this is just a technique. Don't think of this as you know anything unusual. But just to notice that there's space everywhere. So just for a few seconds in silence, just intentionally think a thought a few times. And just notice right before you intentionally think that thought, just notice the space. And then in, in particular, notice at the very end of the thought, space. So let's just try that.
It's almost as if one of the most pervasive thoughts is pay no attention to the space in the mind. Only look at the conditions, the thoughts, the sensations, and react to them. And so we're just retraining the mind to notice the space. Another way in this chapter that he suggests, a, a way that I particularly like, and for some people this will be easier than for others, but he calls it noticing the silence or the sound of silence in the mind. So we're, we're literally practicing listening. But this is a slightly different kind of listening, not just to the sounds that we all hear, but there's kind of a background sound or a primordial sound like a hum or a buzz. Some people um, just notice it more than other people. Don't worry if you don't notice it. But the interesting thing about this background sound, this humming sound or shh sound, the sound of silence, is it's, it's conducive to recognizing a sense of space because it doesn't really have a center. And in fact, it doesn't have a location at all. You can hear it with your ears plugged. It doesn't really depend on any particular condition to hear that sound. And so you might just notice this background sound. And you'll see that because it doesn't have a center, it's really conducive to the mind letting go of its fixating tendency. There's nothing we'd ever try to get from that sound. It doesn't deliver anything except peacefulness because we're not trying to get anything from it. So let's just take a few seconds. And you're just noticing the background sound like a an inner sound in the mind. And for those of you who can easily access this, then you can just use that to uh, to intuitively recognize and learn to trust space in which all these conditions of our life are arising in. Some of you know there's a sound studio. It's called Orfield Laboratory, just a couple blocks away by Matthews Park. And uh, they have one of the quietest studio rooms in the world evidently there and uh, you know it's completely soundproofed and he called the other like several months ago and he said that one of the TV local TV stations they were going to do a news report on it because it's sort of unusual and he he thought it would be kind of neat to have some meditators meditating when the news people came so that the news people could interview the meditators like what it was like to sit in such a quiet room and I, I thought it was a little gimmicky, so I decided. I said I wasn't interested, and I think he found a few people though to go over. I gave him some names to call. But anyway, the, it's easier to notice that background sound when it's really if you're in a really quiet place, because then your mind's not distracted by other sounds. So when you go into a very quiet room where there's not a lot of ambient noise, you just might hear it. And then once you learn to recognize it, you can even hear it in really noisy places. It's just sort of learning to attune to that background sound. And don't try to figure out what that is or what it isn't. Is it mystical? Is it ordinary? Is it just, you know, the computer and the brain humming? Don't worry about that. Just take it as a pragmatic technique, like 
paying attention to that background sound turns the mind away from fixation towards the natural uh, recognition of the natural space in the mind as opposed to fixating on particular conditions the mind relaxes it relaxes its tendency to fixate to get contracted So the last thing I want to say before just opening it up for discussion is, you know, remember that this recognition of space is insight and it's, it is the fruit of doing all that preliminary work of understanding that there is a need for a shift in attitude from trying to get stuff from life, trying to attain things, to being receptive. So just understanding that shift in attitude and then training with like trying to operationalize that new attitude with ordinary experience like the breath, sensations in the body, sounds. And then we get good with ordinary experience and we try to, uh, we try to um, live out that new attitude with more afflictive states, you know, difficult mind states, just letting those, letting anger come and go without reacting to the anger. Letting joy come and go without reacting to the joy. And the more we can do that, then the more we have insight into the natural space of the mind. And see, then there's a very powerful feedback loop. The more we trust, recognize and trust space of the heart, space of the mind, the more we're free of whatever the particular conditions are in the moment. We're not there's a certain spaciousness, whatever, we just kind of go with the flow. I mean, that is the fruit of this insight, is that we're not all wrapped up based on what the particular conditions are. So if there happens to be a lot of pain in the body, we don't get thrown for a loop. Or if there's a lot of dullness in our mind on a particular day, we don't freak out. Or if our friend who is always so loving and gentle is now a brat, it doesn't, throw, it doesn't sort of throw us off. We just know how to receive conditions as they are, knowing that conditions come and go, knowing that things change, knowing that anything can happen anytime, knowing that conditions aren't worthy of any kind of clinging or fixation. The mind is, learns to take refuge in the Buddha. This is what we mean by the Buddha. The Buddha as a word, represents the space of the present mind. It's not a historic person we're taking refuge in. We're taking refuge in the Buddha, the awakened heart. It's just another way of saying the space of the heart, the space of the present moment. That's what we take refuge in, which is the opposite of our self-centered drama. That's the narrow, fixated mind. That's the opposite. That's Mara. That's the bad guy. If you want to turn it into some dualistic model, that's the devil, right? Self-centered thinking is the bad guy. The space of the heart is the good guy. So I'll leave it there. Good versus evil. And just say that the, the, the one teaching the Buddha gave that's so simple and we could just work with this the rest of our life. He said, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to 
as I, me, or mine. Nothing, meaning there's no condition, no thought, no sensation, no sound, there's no condition worthy of being clung to as I, me, or mine. This is it. This is all the teachings. All we have to do is practice that, realize that, the truth of that statement. So I'll leave it there so we have time to hear from each other what you're noticing in your own practice or any questions that you have about the talk tonight. What comes to mind? Any experiences of this, what we're, what I've been calling space? Mm-hmm. Paul? today. My mom visited, my dad brought my mom over who has uh, well progressed uh, Alzheimer's and uh, you know she can't say anything sensible at this point and we were just sitting outside after having lunch together and it's kind of breezy out and uh, we were just sitting in the shade and my dad was doing something else and and uh, I was just that this sense of peacefulness just sort of sharing space with her and she would say things that didn't make any sense, and I'd say something, you know, and but it was just like uh, I think we both. She was really happy, and it was just I think because we were sharing the space, and on that level, that was something she could still do, you know. Her mind was still capable of not fixating, like any human mind is, and just sort of recognizing to some degree the space of the present moment and relaxing in the space of the present moment. And to some degree, I was able to do that too. And it was a really wonderful time to just be there with her. It wasn't a problem at all that she had Alzheimer's. Now, I could easily create a story, right, and then uh, have a thought and then get fixated on that thought, oh, why did this have to happen to my mom? But I don't need to do that. That can just, that thought can just be a thought and it arises and then it ceases and then there's space again. And if I take refuge in the thought, I'll suffer. If I get caught in that thought, identified with that thought, indulge in that thought, I suffer. If I take refuge in the space, I don't suffer. And it's not being in denial that she has Alzheimer's because that thought comes, I see it clearly, I'm just not grabbing a hold of it, fixating on it. Thanks for sharing that. Other thoughts people have or questions? Yeah. 
sharing space. so they can hear you all the way in the back. I had a day where I was really grumpy and I noticed that the space around me was contracting, you know, like you described. I don't have words for it. And um, the way that I, I didn't even realize how I was getting out of it, but I realized through talking to another person not related to my grumpiness and my contraction that this other person, just through relating to them, broadened that space. And so it allowed it not to be so centered around me. Yeah. So I think that can be a really useful thing to remember what Chris has said, because probably all of us have certain friends that tend to be spacious. And uh, so even if we show up or call them up and we're in a tight place, it's like they don't, they, they don't sort of model uh, fixating on our tightness on whatever story that we have and so it's like you know the interesting thing is about human beings is that we sympathetically resonate with one another so if somebody's really established in non-clinging non-fixating it's really hard to hold up our fixation try it sometime like if if we're around people who aren't sort of being codependent and, and sort of supporting our fixation. It's hard to hold it up. We either get angry at them, you know, or we get loosened up. We sort of start having more space. It's really a gift. And it's not about judging people either. It's not about like, oh, that person's really caught up, because that's just another fixation. You know, thinking the person's caught up and being identified with that view is just fixation. So then we're basically in the same boat they are. But just receiving, just understanding that it's like this. My friend is like this. And just understanding that their suffering comes and goes. So we don't need to be afraid of their suffering. Because normally when we see a friend who's really suffering, we get tight because we're afraid of it. But if we remember that suffering comes and goes, and we can really be close to this person, we don't need to be afraid of their suffering. Suffering's not contagious. We can actually be close, and it's a great gift to, to meet somebody who's in a really tight space, to meet them with openness. That's called love and compassion. That's what compassion is. It's the ability to be close to suffering without feeding the suffering with identification or reactivity. So a little bit of time left if anybody else has any thoughts. Yes. I have a question about uh, very strong feelings and emotions. How does one work with those? Yeah. Well, it may not be possible to to immediately work with them in the way that we'd like to, which would be to uh, see those strong emotions as just a condition in the moment that comes and goes, and to really have that intuitive sense of space 
in which that, those strong emotions are coming and going. It may not be easy to do that. It may, it may not be possible to do that. But what we can do is see that when we have strong emotions, what we can see very clearly is our tendency, the tendency of the mind is to, like that the black hole example I was giving, is to get caught in the gravitational pull of that self-centered drama. And because of that gravitational pull, to really suffer, to keep spinning in a way that isn't productive, that's conducive of stress, suffering. So that we can definitely see clearly. That's a good thing to see, because it gives us an incentive then to do the practice, which is to understand we need a shift in attitude, and we need to begin where it's relatively easy, like shifting the attitude with ordinary experience, like the breath, sensations. You get good there, and then when more afflictive states come, distractions come, then begin to practice with moderate distractions. And then, of course, it's good to practice even with extreme distractions or very difficult emotions. That we have to be forgiving. You know, we may not have enough confidence, enough insight to really be able to let go of the tendency to react to that kind of pain. Because there is a very strong gravitational pull due to our habit of taking this seriously, taking this emotion as self, and it just pulls us in. And even people who practice, you know, I practice now for, I don't know, 20, uh, 25 years, and I still, you know, and I've been a pretty serious student, and I still get really caught in certain situations. And uh, I, I know enough that I'm caught, but I can't necessarily do anything about it for periods of time. I just, it's like, I know I'm drowning, but that's it. You know, and that actually, it's good to know I'm drowning when I'm drowning. But I can't, I can't uh, really take refuge in this space. I still know there's space there, but it can't, it's not going to help me right now. Right now I'm suffering. I'm a suffering being. And the best I can do is forgive myself for being a suffering being. Not hate myself for being a suffering being. But just receive the experience of being a suffering being. And it's a little spacious, isn't it? To allow myself to be a suffering being, there's some space in that. It's not as much space as a suffering being might want, but it's better than being a suffering being and hating being a suffering being. That's the worst. Let's leave it here. And we'll just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.